When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Rome Bunter Radio, episode 14, Trey Yannity, Marty Lee, Nick Caparoso. We are joined tonight by staff writer Noah Wright. Eight days, 211 hours, the amount of time it would take to walk from Pittsburgh to Nashville, Tennessee, was the amount of time in between the Pittsburgh Pirates, win number two and win number three. But gentlemen, the Pirates are victorious yet again after losing the first three to the Minnesota Twins. They cap it off with a walk-off Kevin Newman victory. There's a lot uh, uh, to be upset about right now if you're a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, but things are turning up, gentlemen. We got Tank Talk tonight. We're going to be talking pipeline, recapping the series, previews, a lot to get covered. Let's start off by just talking about this win and how good it feels to finally get back in the W call. Marty, why don't you get started tonight? Yeah, it was nice to win. I, I kind of forgotten what it was like to win a baseball game. I kind of forgot that you were allowed to win baseball games from time to time. But, no, it was nice. You know, it was a good win. Come from behind. You beat their closer. You get the walk off from Kevin Newman, which was something we saw a lot of last year. It felt nice to win a baseball game. And it was it was nice, too, that it was an exciting finish. It was good to see the team rally and not put their heads down, not give up when they got behind to come back and win the game. Yeah, it really felt good. Even if you're taking it, it always feels nice to get a win here and there. Especially, you're saying that they rallied off their closer. Taylor Rogers is a really good closer, and it was fun to see them come back on somebody who can be such a dominant relief pitcher and just take it away from the... It, it kind of felt like what happened in uh, Minnesota a few nights ago. 
but the other way around. Yeah, and it was good to see Kevin Newman come up with the big hit. You know, like I've said before, this team, we're not going to win a ton of games. We're seeing that, but seeing guys like Newman producing, you know, that that's really what we as fans need to hope is that these young guys uh, start to get hot, and it looks like they are. Young guys like JT Brubaker, who made his first career start today, um, you know, saw some good stuff. Uh, you know, really a line drive homer there in the first inning that got out. Unfortunate for him. Um, but like you said, the youngsters producing, it's going to be weird now. I feel like everybody, I don't know about you guys, everybody I've talked to, people, you know, asking me, oh, you know, what, what's the Pirates record now? It's just been two and, uh, oh, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine. It's going to be weird to, to say three now. It's going to take a few days to be used to that. Um, but but the Pirates do get a win against the Minnesota Twins. This may affect a, a strategy that people are hopping onto the bandwagon of pretty fast here, the tank strategy. We talked about it in depth last episode, but let's get let's get back into it a little bit here to start it out. Uh, when it comes to tank talking, there, I think there's some misconceptions. I think you know people get the wrong idea. Um, you know, some people don't believe that teams even you know do tank in 2020. Uh, but as far as the Pirates go, are we going to see, you know, a, a continuation of, of weird lineups and maybe certain guys like Del Pozo getting more time? Does this fall into a tanking strategy? I guess, you know, where do we stand now, uh, I guess, 13 games into the season? I read about this earlier this week. It was one of those um, articles that I started writing, and it was about how they're projected to have the worst record in baseball and it kind of went into the direction of why that's actually a positive thing and you know more or less the the phrase tank you know what that makes it sound like is like you blow it up you purposely are losing and the pirates are by no means purposely losing okay but the issue with the pirates is they just lack talent so yeah, they didn't bring any talent in. They didn't spend money. They didn't, you know, the payroll was around 55 to 60 million to start the year. It was the lowest in the league. They weren't necessarily trying to win. And that's more what tanking is in baseball. You know, like they're not throwing games or anything like that. These guys, you know, Josh Bell, Adam Frazier, Cole Tucker, Brian Rounds, they're going out there and they're trying to get a hit every time up. But the fact of the matter is the organization knows there's not a ton of talent and they're not going to win a lot of games. So why invest into this team now when the best thing for this team going forward is going to be to maybe lose for this year and next year, but accumulate top end talent in doing so, then hopefully spend money down the road when, you know, they actually have that talent at the big league level, but you see teams do this. Now you saw the Astros do this. You saw the Cubs do it. Um, and it led to a lot of winning for them. You know, I saw some comments in the article talking about, well, yeah, they spent and right. That's a big key. You know, they, they, the pirates need to spend when it's time, but right now it's not time. They could have spent 20 to $30 million more this off season and still finish in last place in the NL. So let's go get Kumar rocker next year. And you know, hopefully this new front office can just rebuild this team and make this down season now worth it. Yeah, you say that, that it doesn't really matter how much they spend. Like, 
the Pirates trading for Mike Trout and the and Jacob Degrom doesn't make this team a playoff contender. There's just so many more holes that you need to fill, and it's just not something that you can feasibly go out and do that would not be a complete that would just not end in complete disaster. And like I said, this isn't something that's going to change overnight. Like this organization was left in a. I mean, people got fired for a reason. <laughs> I think one thing with, with that, too, is not changing overnight. I mean, the pirate farm system is in a pretty good spot right now. But yes, a lot yes. of that is guys who are a ways away from the major leagues yet. They don't have a lot of top-end talent in the upper farm system. You know, you look at your top prospects, Brennan Malone, Quinn Priester, you know, whoever it may be. Tanash Thomas, Lou Verpaguero, these are all guys that are in A-ball. Like, they're guys that are a few years away yet. So, Six of our top ten prospects, according to Fangraphs, won't debut at least until 2022. Exactly, and that's where, like, you got to look at it and say, okay, yes, this is a very good farm system, but if you look at the top-end talent in the farm system, it's guys who are not close to the majors outside of really Cabrian Hayes and maybe O'Neill Cruz. So... People need to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I have an article coming out soon about just looking at some of the players we have coming up through the pipeline. And you're right, they're not going to be ready until 2022 and probably around 2023 when they're really going to see a lot more playing time in the major leagues. And right. by that time, you're going to these guys could be really proven players. And that and to have a really deep lineup is something that the Pirates don't have right now, and something that they couldn't do right now. You know, you're. Nick, going back to what you said earlier, like it doesn't matter if they went out and signed the best the best pitcher and the best offensive player that was a free agent, or if they went out and traded for Mike Trout and Jacob Degrom, that doesn't change the fact that the Pirates were still going to be a bad team. Regardless, there would they would have, would have to completely overhaul, which would not be something I would like to see them do with a major league roster. It just, you just got to be patient with it and just. These play the players in the farm system are going to be good at some point. Now, is every single prospect going to be turn out? No, but the prospect. But right now, the farm system is extremely deep, and I have faith that we can find a major league lineup in our farm system right now. And no matter what you do, like you look at even the big spenders, teams like the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and most of their cores it's built still from, built from within. within. Exactly. So you, the Pirates. You know, like I said, they could spend some money now if they wanted to just to say they're spending money and it's not going to make a difference right now. The the goal of this franchise is to see what young players are going to be part of the next window and what prospects are going to be a part of, you know, the next wave. And from there, you know, they're more focused on winning then than now. And that that's OK, because now they're focused on just acquiring as much talent as they can. You just have to embrace it right now. I mean, this is suffering, but the, the payoff. This is Ben Charrington's calling card. Exactly. He knows what he's doing. This, this whole organization. This is why he was brought in. Exactly. It, it's it's it, It's got to be a full buy-in, too. I think that's – we talked about it last episode. You can't just dip your toes in. You really, you know, two tanks. That's what cost Neil Huntington his job. Exactly, yeah. And, and you know, we've seen what it, what it looks like to, to get halfway in. Dipping your toes in is, is exactly what Neil Huntington did his last few years on the job. You know, you trade Andrew McCutcheon and you trade Garrett Cole, but you don't go full rebuild. You try and add guys who are major league ready or close 
so you don't maximize your return. And as a result, you hang on to Starling Marte too long. And, you know, then you go out and do the Chris Archer deal and just he, – he never committed one way or the other. Okay, are we going to win now or are we going to rebuild? You can't sit on the fence somewhere in the middle. And it's good to see Ben Charrington just fully committing to, you know, let's blow this thing up. Let, let's rebuild it and let's put ourselves in a position where two, three years down the road, we can find ourselves one of the best young cores in baseball. The only thing Ben Charrington has to say right now is we are, we have a plan, you know, we're trying to bring in talent. It's going to take some time because right now all the issues and what it comes down to all the issues we talk about is because of Neil Huntington. So Ben Charrington can't take a lot of blame for this team this year. So it hopefully that patience is there from the fan base, but I think a lot of the fan base does understand that it's not on the current front office. It's still, you know, just a problem that's been an escalating over the last few years. And to build off of that, Nick, what you're saying about Neil Huntington, it's almost like you're, you're failing all your classes throughout the entire school year. And you're telling your parents that, you know, you're, you're making straight A's, pay it forward, suffer now, you know, go ahead and get over this hurdle of, of losing and being bad and not sugarcoating it, trying to wait, you know, for maybe that, that window where you, you, you go after somebody and spend money in the wrong way or trade the wrong players Instead, let's just let's let's get it out of the way. Yeah, that 2018 season and going back with like Marty with the Archer trade, it just felt like we were stuck in the middle and we weren't doing anything. We weren't doing anything that was really hurting. We were more hurting ourselves than being productive because we were just stuck in that position where it just felt like we existed and we weren't getting better. We just sat there and did nothing. We didn't go one way and we didn't go another. And I think one of the worst things that happened to us in 2018. If you guys remember, it was at like 11 game winning streak, and that's what made him make that Chris Archer deal, which set us back. And listen, that, that winning streak is one of the worst things that's ever happened as, to the Springfield. That's absolutely one of the worst things that's happened in the, I'd say, like the last five years to the Pirates. And it, it just completely set us back because it gave, it gave us false hope. It just made us think, well, maybe, maybe we could do it. And that's what I think that's one of the big reasons why they just went after Chris Archer during that year. And then after it, we really didn't get any better. And the offseason that year, we didn't really do anything. I think the biggest trade I can remember from that offseason was when we traded for Eric Gonzalez and Thomas, which I think Thomas is going to be a really good starting pitching pitching prospect. But, you know, it wasn't anything that... It was back to selling. Yeah. So, right. And, you know, the Pirates don't have that margin for error that other teams have especially in a trade for with meadows and glass now and then your the throw the player that was the player to be named later was boz who was a borderline top 100 prospect at the time yeah i mean trey you kind of hit it too like the pirates they just they need to make a decision and make sure they stick to it. They don't have a lot of margin for error when they do make trades. Like Noah's just said, you know, it it can really come back to bite them. And, you know, they just don't have the resources that other organizations do to make up for that. So, you know, them spending money now, what's the point? 
No point at all. Nick's article, the Pittsburgh Pirates are projected to have the worst record by fan graphs. Check it out now. Rumbuncher.com. You can find it on our social media as well. Um, but to look into the future a little bit here, uh, I think, um, you know, th- there's there's so much to be excited about. The top 100 midseason prospect list came out released by Major League Baseball last night. The Pirates landed three in that top 100. A little bit of a surprise. Number 41, the top Pirate prospect, draftee Nick Gonzalez. Coming in there, we see Cabrian Hayes down at 46. Uh, O'Neill Cruz on the list as well at 72. Uh, you know, let, let's brief this list a little bit. I, I was incredibly excited to see Gonzalez get on and, and place at 41 right out of the gate. Yeah, Gonzalez at 41 was very exciting. I noted in my write-up about this that he actually was ranked one spot ahead of the number three overall pick, Max Meyer. So that was cool to see that he, um, you know, even though wasn't drafted as high as people thought he was going to be, is still getting recognition for his overall talent. My biggest issue with the list actually comes from the top 30, not so much the top 100. Uh, Tanaj Thomas ranks as our 15th best prospect, according to MLB Pipeline right now, which I was very shocked about. Uh, The guy reportedly, you know, hit up towards 100 miles per hour a couple times last year. He has a plus breaking ball. He really made strides as a starter last year. He's six foot four. I mean, there's everything you could want. If he was in the MLB draft next year, you know, he would be considered a first round prospect. So I, I'm just a little shocked that he wasn't even on their top 100 when he's on a lot of the other sites, top 100s, but also just not even in the Pirates top 10. Yeah, one thing with Thomas, if, if you look at Fangraphs, for example, Fangraphs has Tanash Thomas as the fifth best, number five in the Pirate system yeah. and a top 100 overall prospect. And David Slusser, you know, fan of the podcast, former contributor, run runner, ran an experiment a year or so ago that the gist of it was if you go off of hit rate, Fangraphs is much better at projecting prospects in an MLB pipeline is. So I, I think the fact that Fangraphs is the one that has six pirate prospects in the top 100 is something that should be very encouraging for pirate fans because the track record there is that Fangraphs is much better at projecting these things than MLB pipeline is. And it's nothing against MLB pipeline. They no, 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 are no, one of the first sites that came out and started doing this. Jonathan Mayo, Jim Cowsley. Yeah, I think the word of Jonathan Mayo. All yeah. year round, right. It's just – you know, the, it's a different opinion. You know, there, there's Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus. Everyone's going to have different lists and they have different opinions of what they see. So, but like like we said, you know, just from doing, you know, Dave doing that research and seeing that Fangraphs, typically their top prospects, you know, make an impact at the big league level more than MLB Pipelines. You know, I'm, I usually try to use Fangraphs. I also like Fangraphs. They have the future value tool, which is nice. It kind of gives you an idea of, um, you know, not just how what they rank in your system, but how they rank overall. Uh, and so talking about that, Marty, you mentioned we had six top 100 on Fangraphs. Uh, going from that, they have O'Neill Cruz as a 55 value, Cabrian Hayes as a 55 value. So, that's very exciting. 55 and up is, you know, you're talking potential um, 
all-star. So my overall prospect in your organization's O'Neill Cruz. Marty, we talked about this, and I would put Tanaj Thomas right behind him. Uh, when you're ranking prospects, uh, you know, I think Nick Gonzalez ranked as the number one prospect is the safe thing. I think he's going to be a good big league player, and everyone knows that he's going to hit. We're ranking top prospects. No one knows if any of these prospects are going to work out or not. So to me, O'Neill Cruz has the highest ceiling. He could turn into the best player in the Pittsburgh Pirates farm system. So to me, he's the number one prospect. Tanaj Thomas, he has 100 mile per hour stuff, you know, elite top of the rotation frame. I don't care necessarily about the question marks right now. I just, when I look at prospects, I'm looking at their overall ceilings and what they can turn into because at the end of the day, the number 44 prospect can do better than the number four prospect. No one really knows. So when I'm looking at rankings, I'm looking at who has the loftiest ceilings. I think one of the more underrated pitchers in our farm system is Malone. I mean, he doesn't really get as much attention like Thomas or Keller was, or even Bolton to some degree, but Malone in that, I think he is a really interesting prospect. I mean, Fangraphs, when you look at his profile, they give him four pitches of a 50 grade, which is average or better. And I think that's something that's really going to help him in the future. The fact that he has an arsenal of four pitches that he can throw to an average or better degree. And he just seems like he's going to be a pitcher that the Pirates are going to be able to rely on for a lot of years. Yeah, Malone's interesting to me. He's another one. You know, he's got a power fastball that's sitting, you know, upwards of 99 mile per hour. Like you said, he has multiple pitches that are considered average or above average. And he's listed at six foot five right now, which I believe is actually a little taller than before. So I'm wondering if that's updated. Uh, an interesting thing about Malone, he was a first round pick in 2019 along with one of our other top pitching prospects, Quinn Priester. The other top pitching prospect in that draft was Matt Allen, who ended up uh, sliding down to the Mets in a later round because of signability concerns. Malone also had signability concerns, and that's why he ended up going towards the back end of the first round. Priester was the top prep pitcher in that draft. Now, where I'm going with this is the fact that there was no consensus top prep pitcher in that draft, but Priester and Malone were two of those three. So the, it's really nice to see that, you know, we have two really projectable quality arms that are going to be coming up through the farm system literally together. Yeah, and I, I love that point about the ceiling you made a minute ago, too. You look at a guy like Priester and, you know, Carmen Majinski, who comes into this list at number eight for the Pirates. Um, there's just so much room to grow there. Really going to be interesting to see how they move these. These, I think those two especially, and, you know, all the guys in the top 10 here. Um, him, he won Bay not making the top 10. Surprised me a little bit um, as well. But I think, uh, you know, we'll see maybe, you know, him move within this next year into that that upper echelon for the Pittsburgh Pirates. A guy that recently graduated from the list JT Brubaker making his first career major league start. How about it? Came out, tough first inning, battled. I believe it was two walks, two strikeouts. Looked solid. Um, you know, what are you guys' thoughts on Brubaker's first start? Not getting the win, but uh, finding victory in, in his first game. 
I've always been a fan of Brew Baker. He's he's been a prospect that I've been following for the last few years. He just seems like such an underrated guy, but you know, a little bit of a bumpy first start, but based on what we've seen him do out of the bullpen for the first few weeks. And when you look at his minor league numbers at AAA, he was a really solid pitcher at AAA. You know, I think maybe this first start, uh, it was just a, it was a little bumpy, but, you know, what do you got to really expect in not only a season like this, but a guy's first start. So I feel like he's got to get better with time as long as we keep giving him some time. And I think he could be a really productive member of this staff, whether that be him in the rotation or him in the bullpen. No, to build off what Noah said, I, honestly, I was a little surprised that Brew Baker was pulled after only three innings in the first start. I mean, he gave up that home run to Miguel Sano in the first inning, and outside of that, I thought he looked pretty good. Um, got himself into another jam that he's able to pitch out of. And I understand they're going to be they're going to be careful with Brew Baker. This was his first start; he wasn't totally stretched out. They've got a ton of injuries to the pitching staff, but I thought Brew Baker probably could have given them another inning. All in all, I thought he pitched pretty decently for his first career start. And I'm excited to see what he can do next time out. I'm, I'm assuming he's going to get a, another start at this point. So I am excited to see what he can do in his next start. Brubaker threw 52 pitches, which I'm I'm going to assume that's why. Last time out, he threw 41. So I think part of it is just getting him stretched out. I think you will see him go a little deeper his next time out. It was good to see Cody Ponce get some time out there too. He uh, looked Honestly, it was the same thing as Brubaker. You take the home runs away, he looked pretty good. His fastball was uh, sitting around 95, and his slider was nasty sitting around 90. So, you know, home runs are going to happen overall. I thought the two young guys showed pretty good stuff, and I'm excited to you know see them in their next opportunities out. No doubt about it. Um, a, a few long home runs, though. Uh, but on the other side of things, how about Gregory Polanco finding the stick today? His first home run of the season. That ball was an absolute bomb. Yeah, I think it might have been the longest home run of his career, actually. Yeah, I think they said that was the longest home run on StatCast since 2015. Yeah, I, I think Polanco is on the brink of really putting this all together here this season. I mean, it, in 2018, before he got hurt, he appeared to really be putting all together as a hitter. And I understand his results have not been great so far this year. But, man, lately his outs have been loud outs. Uh, so far this year, his exit velocity is 96 miles per hour. The MLB average is 89. His hard contact rate is 50%. The MLB average is 37. If you keep doing that, you're going to get pretty good results. So I think Polanco – he struggled some in the field. I have my questions over whether or not he's still an outfielder or not just a DH at this point because of his shoulder and his arm. But the last week or so, I think he has looked terrific at the plate. He's hitting the ball hard even when it's going for outs. I think that Polanco is right on the brink of really turning a corner here and becoming a catalyst in this offense. The issue, Marty, is – He's still swinging and missing too much. I mean, he struck out twice again, and his whiff percent this year is 54%. Um, his career percent is 22. So, you know, that's something that you would think needs to start coming down, but I don't know. It's what, What's worrisome, I get he's hitting the ball hard when he hits it, but it, I don't know if it's, you know, his timing, if he's still getting it back. I hope so. You know, the swing looked good today. 
but it's one of those things. He just, it seems like Polanco in his career has just, he needs so much timing and mechanical that it's just so hard for him to get it all going at the same time. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I, I want to be sold. The, the power is obviously still there. Um, mechanically, I think it could be there, but, but I'm with you, Nick. I just, I don't think that the Gregory Polanco, you know, we saw back in 2014, 2015, it, it, we're ever going to get that Gregory Polanco again. I just think we're seeing maybe a Gregory Polanco that has kind of gotten, I think it's a shell of his former self. Exactly. Yeah. And he has that mindset too, it seems like. It almost seems like, you know, you can, it's like clockwork. You can look, you know, at a Polanco at bat, 0 2 count, 1 2 count, even, forget about it. There's there's no shot, and that's you know his style of hitting, obviously. But it almost seems like there's certain counts, certain situations where he just gives up. Uh, and and I, I don't know if this is if if this is the long term option. I'm not trying to compare him directly to Pedro Alvarez, but they share a lot of similarities in the sense of being top prospects who more or less never reach your ceilings and you know when i what i see in polanco is you're right it's not 2014 2015 gregory polanco anymore and it hasn't been for a long time even close he 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 was probably a better player five years ago than he is now between the injuries and just i think some of the the mental turmoil that he's gone through just the last few years of just trying to get play through the injuries, figure out what he's doing wrong at the plate, having the coaches to what we understand, telling him a lot of different things and letting him know when he was messing up. Uh, You know, it just sounds like there's a lot of pressure on him and like Alvarez, some guys just can't handle it. And I just don't think that Polanco is ever going to be able to reach that ceiling or consistency because I just think that, the game itself is too much for him at this point. I think he just, he's lost the pa- He doesn't look like he, the passions there. I, I, I do with, with Polanco, whether this is with the pirates or elsewhere, I do believe a full term move to DH would do him wonders. I think a lot of his problems are stemming from, his inability to throw the ball at the force he would like to at this point coming from the outfield. And Nick and Nick, you and I talked about this on the phones yesterday the day before, where there was that a bat against Minnesota the other night where there was two plays in right field that were not difficult throws to make. And he was just clearly not physically capable of making a throw and was very frustrated himself. And then comes out and just an absolute missile to play in Byron Buxton just being Byron Buxton ran it down and he looked just totally defeated after all of that. And I do wonder how much of that is it's just always been one thing after another with them. Yeah. You know? And like I said, I wonder how much of that, and you and I talked about this in the phone the other day. I wonder how much of that was him taking the defense to the plate with him and then just being so frustrated. So I, I do think if Polanco would ever get in a position where he could permanently move the DH for a team, I think he could be a very good hitter for that team. But Again, until we would see something like that happen, you would never know. But I still firmly believe, and I might be in the minority at this point, but I still firmly believe Gregory Polanco has it in him to be a well above league average hitter. I want to believe that too, very much. But I thought 2018 was just 
a big break because I thought this is the year he's finally doing it. This is gonna be the year after so many other years where he said this is gonna be the year. But I just thought after that injury, it just seemed like so much. There just a lot of his athleticism was lost in that injury because a lot of his athleticism was in his legs and was in his arm. Because when you thought about it, like 2014, 2015, 2016. Polanco was known for being a guy who had a cannon on his shoulder. And when you have a shoulder injury and a leg injury like that, it just takes a lot out of you. And like you're saying, I mean, I th- it might be just an attitude thing. I don't know, but it just seemed like, and, but with like how he's, how he's handling things, but it just seems like, like you said, it just seems like weak throws and stuff. And it's just something I really miss seeing, but I really am hoping you can still at least do something with the back. Cause like you said, he's hitting the ball hard, so you know that's there. But there's still a lot of swing and miss in his game, so it could be a timing thing. I'm, I just really want to see him do good because I do feel bad for him. Listen, Marty, you know I'm the biggest Polanco fan there is. Okay, when he, I followed him coming up, I couldn't wait for him to be called up. You know that, but I just. I like Noah said, it's just every year. Oh, this is the year, and I think I think that's a little bit of the issue here. I think even for him, it's like every time he starts to get going, something else happens. Like Noah said, he tears his labrum. He has that sliding incident. It's just like, and now it's just like, how do you find that consistency? I just feel so bad for him right. after all. Cause he, I mean, you know, that talent's there. You saw that swing during the game the other day. Like that swing is unbelievable. It's just, I don't, uh, he just he's not on the field enough and you can see it on his face even I mean even that that second you know or the the final out he made against Minnesota line drive missile caught by Kepler you can tell he's just he doesn't really even know what to, to do at this point what to think because this journey has really taken it out of him um, but but you can only hope that this is the beginning of, you know, maybe a little turnaround. We're, we're seeing him hit the baseball. He came into the uh, the game four against Minnesota, 0 for 19, or 1 for 19, I believe. Has turned it around, um, you know, mentally at least, it seems. But we're just going to have to see what we get out of a guy like Gregory Polanco and so many of these guys this year as the season goes on. At Rumbunter Radio, uh, at Rumbunter in general, we love fan interaction, getting to, to talk with all of you who, who listen, read our content. Um, today we put out a, a question on Twitter um, or put out a tweet really to hear you guys' thoughts, what you guys want to to know. And we're going to have some episodes coming up here where we really dive into some Twitter questions. But let's, let's tackle a couple tonight as we close out this episode. Um, an interesting question from at Sell the Pirates. Uh, maybe an interesting name there too. Um, he asked, who will be the Dark Horse Minor League call-up Let's rephrase this a little bit. Maybe who's one guy in the 60-man pool that is interesting, a younger guy that we maybe don't talk about as much? I think for me, Jared Oliva, he's a outfielder uh, who's been working his way up through the minor league system the last few years. They drafted him out of University of Arizona. He is a center fielder by trade and uh, rates out to be a plus defender. So he definitely has the ability to stand center field. So, you know, what Marty's talking about me trying to get Polanco more into a long-term DH situation could open up a chance for Oliva to come up and play every day. Um, You know, he's 6'3". He ranks as a 45-plus. 
overall, he's not going to, you know, hit 30 home runs or he's not going to hit 300 per se, but I think he has a nice all around game that could be useful at least for the pirates right now. And down the line might be a really nice fourth outfielder for them. Yeah. Yeah. So he's an athletic guy too. He stole, he's stolen a lot of bases the last few years. I think, I think he stole like 30 some last year, 36, I think, but he hits for average and is a guy that he, he's kind of a prototypical leadoff guy. Cause he doesn't hit for a bad average and he gets on base and he's fast enough to round the bases at a good rate. And, is exactly. that's kind of somebody that you want at the top of your order to get on get right. in the scoring position and be able to get him around. And that's why I think you might see him this year, just because he has that overall athleticism and the fact that he could play any of the three outfield positions and, you know, the, the bat is intriguing enough and the speed on the base pass is intriguing enough that you probably would like to see what you have in him before going into next year. Yeah, I like that pick as well because, I mean, if you look at players who are in the 60-man player pool who are prospects, I mean, everyone talks about Key Brian Hayes. Everybody talks about Blake Cedarland. Neither of them would be considered dark horses to get a call up. And then you look past that, I don't think we see O'Neill Cruz. I don't think we see Paguero. I don't think we see Nick Mears. So I, I like the Oliver pick. And like you said, Nick, to kind of see what you have going into next year, Jared Dyson's not going to be here. So do you need to go at a center fielder? Can you start the year potentially with all of us, your center fielder? So I, I like that pick. Certainly. And it's going to be so fun to watch all of these guys, um, you know, these youngsters get into it. But all of us is, is up and coming. And we talked about it a second ago. He is uh, now cracked into the top 10 on that prospects listed. Well, at number 10, at Let's Go Bucks 55 wants to know, is Derek Shelton buying into the tank? We talked about it to start the episode tonight, but definitely some, uh, you know, some, some interest behind this one. Are we seeing certain lineup strategies change because of Derek Shelton's mentality when it comes to tanking? Listen, if, if Derek Shelton is buying into the tank, I'm going to feel much better about his long-term pro- projections as manager of this franchise. Um, I mean, the twin series, I didn't think was, there was not as nearly as much egregious, decision making and things like that as there had been. But but that game Monday night when Derek Holland is just cruising right along to go to Miguel Del Pozo, I, I, I don't get it. Um but I'm not gonna keep harping on that. People who listen to the pod who read the site know that so far I'm not a fan of Derek Sheldon at all. But if he's buying into the tank, I will feel much better about what he could potentially accomplish as the manager of this team. I think it's a little bit of what I was saying, you know, at the beginning of the show, it's, you know, he's playing with what he was dealt, you know, and part of it is this is a 60 game season. They're not expecting to compete. So he's throwing out there what he has. He's getting through the season. He's seeing what he has. I'm sure Charrington, you know, and him and are in communication about giving guys certain innings just to, see how they can handle it, you know, and see really what they have in Del Pozo. Obviously we can see he's not very good, but is it really going to matter long-term for the season if they are trying to tank? And I think that's what it comes down to. I don't think Derek Shelton, once again, wants to lose baseball games, but I think he's operating with what he has and knows that it's not going to be necessarily a winning product. 
Yeah, I think right now he's just trying to, like you say, he just kind of feels way around. You know, maybe ex I think maybe he just might be experimenting a little, seeing what works, what doesn't. You know, why not in this season? Why not take some risks? Why not just see what this guy can do in this position or whatever? Just I feel giving, like you said, Del Pozo a shot. I feel like he might give maybe some other guys that aren't getting that aren't really getting much attention, like uh, JT Riddle. He might give. More at-bats to JT Riddle now that he's activated. You know, who knows what's going to happen. I, I hope that Shelton is going to become a good manager. And right now he's just feeling things out and getting and loosening up to how managing works. Yeah, and you know, you can't get the wrong idea either. If you walked up to Derek Shelton or you walked up to Ben Sherrington or anybody in this front office with the team, around the team, nobody is, is going to tell you they want to lose baseball games. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in and around the team that, you know, doesn't understand what is possible if this team does finish and last this year. And I think that, you know, you put out a team trying to win every night, but um, the Pirates, with the way the situation is, losing, coming in last place is not the worst thing in the whole world, like we were talking about earlier. Let's move on one more we had a lot of a, a lot of different questions about Cole Tucker and how he fits into the lineup, into the starting nine. What works best for for Cole Tucker moving forward? Put him at shortstop now. He's he's your he's your shortstop of the future. I'm tired of seeing him in the outfield. It just I still think Cole Tucker can be a very good shortstop. Yeah, I mean Newman's not your long-term shortstop defensively, regardless of what it is with the glove or with the bat. Excuse me, because he struggles so much defensively at short. Just get Tucker at short. Let's see what we've got in him. I I'm a huge Cole Tucker fan. He needs to be at shortstop, not in center field, not in right field, not in left field. Shortstop. I'm a big fan of Cole Tucker too, and I've been I've been really wanting to see. His glove at shortstop. I, I don't care what he does with the bat. His his glove at shortstop is going to provide so much value to this team. I He's made some defense defensive miscues in out the outfield. I just want to see him at shortstop, like you said. that I he, He's going to be a very, very good shortstop. His bat eventually will come around, okay? He wasn't that bad last year at the end of the year. He started hitting the ball better. He started making harder contact. He got his exit velocity up nearing the end of the year. But I, but the defensive value he's going to bring is going to – would really help right now. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to JT Riddle or shortstop. He should not have started shortstop today. If you're not going to start Newman, please, for the love of God, put Tucker there. Sorry, Nick. Oh, you're good. I, I agree with – that I Tucker needs to be at shortstop a big thing. I know they're putting him in the outfield right now because part of it is just with the depth in the outfield, just trying to get him at bats. And that's great. But like Noah said, the real value is in his glove at shortstop. You know, it's going to be a lot easier to see him struggle a little bit at the plate right now as he's working through things and progressing as a hitter. If you're seeing him, you know, make highlight real plays at shortstop instead of, making miscues in the outfield and that's not on him by any means you know he's playing a position that he's never had to play before when he you know arguably has a gold glove at shortstop so i they need to get back there the big thing you know the trade deadlines at the end of this month adam frazier's name was uh hot on the market during the offseason it appears that you know 
Charrington's going to be listening uh, at this deadline as well, just with the team not going anywhere. So if Adam Frazier is moved by the end of the month, you know that I think that obviously will be a big part in getting Tucker back to playing every day at short. And I think as the landscape of this team changes, like you're saying, Nick, we're going to see Tucker get more opportunity there. And, um, you know, elsewhere, it's great to see them giving a concerted effort to get his bat in the lineup most days. I love him at the leadoff spot. First pitch home run the other night, I thought that was great. Um, But, you know, we'll just kind of see how he is worked in. So, so young, so much talent. The fan favorite, if nothing else. Love everything about Cole Tucker. And, uh, you know, it's going to be fun to see him work into that shortstop role hopefully here in the near future. That is all the time we have for tonight. Great questions, guys. We're going to be putting out tweets, um, you know, here in the, in the near future, getting your guys' takes and opinions. Please reach out to us with anything you'd like us to talk about or be asked. We will be joining you on Sunday to recap the weekend series and anything else uh, as far as tanking goes and, and some other subjects as well. For Marty Leap and Nick Caparoso, my name is Trey Yannity. Noah, thank you for joining us again here tonight. As always, you can find us on fansided.com slash rumbunter, spreaker.com slash rumbunter, on our social media, at rumbunter on Twitter, and Apple Music as well. Until next time, let's go Bucks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.